All right, so here we are, season two, Data Protection Breakfast Club. We got Mark Kahn, the GC of Segment, uh, who company just got sold to Twilio. So Mark is uh, uh, just got went through a big deal and it's got a lot of cool stuff to talk to us about. We chose White Snake, which is uh, I'll let you pick next time. <laughs> you can pick some some hip hop next time. We're going in a totally different direction next, but that's cool. No, I like White Snake. This is good, man. Um, yeah, it's a good choice. I'll leave it at that. And it looks like you're wearing because you're right in the middle of the logo on my screen, so it looks like you're wearing like a White Snake crown right now. It's pretty tough. I'm an angel. I'm the, the White Snake. <laughs> white Snake angel. <laughs> no, it works, man. It works. Good. Well, uh, you have some news. Oh, yes. Uh, so as of, I guess, last week now, I have uh, left Salesforce. Shout out to Salesforce. Great company. I had a great job, a great team. And uh, it was really hard to uh, to make a change because I really liked it there. And that's, I got to say, Andy, man, like I've worked at a few places now, uh, done government, in-house, private firm, all, all the things. Um, Salesforce is one of the most ethical, upstanding corporations, organizations I've ever been a part of. So it was really hard to leave and there's a lot of great work being done there. And that company uh, is setting the example such for- a solid, Such a solid company and- Just solid, good like, people. Really smart. smart choices by Salesforce across the board in terms of business, data, privacy, acquisitions. Like they just- yeah. I don't know, like you, you were there, I wasn't, but like all the things they do, kind of the big moves we're talking about, they all seem to make sense and tie together in a cohesive way. Whereas you see other companies when they reach a certain size, they, they can be a little bit like scattershot in what they're doing. And I don't see that from Salesforce at all. Yeah, no, super solid place, solid business, solid people, solid mindset and a kind of company ethos, amazing. Um, so so yeah, look, you're gonna do, Ads yeah, so, yeah. Yeah. So I'm headed to Facebook or I'm at Facebook now and um, super exciting. I don't think there is another company on earth that is as well positioned as Facebook is to shape what the future of the internet is. Like, I just don't think so. Uh, I mean, there's some that are close, you know, or, or similar like Google and, and Apple and Amazon and, and, you know, a couple others, Alibaba, whatever. But um you know, I just, I, I, I started talking to the Facebook people a couple months ago, you know, they really are pivoting hard on, you know, incorporating privacy as a fundamental component of the company's consciousness, right? Um, and uh, the company has grown and a lot of its growth has come in the area of making, of shoring up its privacy practices. And I'm going to join uh, the privacy policy team uh, and kind of wear a couple hats like uh, as I, I'm going to lead the ads privacy policy team and uh, that team's got kind of two components like ads privacy and make you know all of the back end part of delivering an ad up to the content um, is it falls under I think my team's purview and then uh, an interesting component to it is kind of like civil rights policy. So civil rights and privacy kind of intersect somewhere in there. Um, and, and half my team's got a responsibility for ensuring that. Big, uh, uh, a big intersection there because yeah. Facebook, uh, as I think of it, is the, the, the top place if you want to, in terms of today's society, think about 
consumer privacy in a lot of ways. Like so. where, are the, where are the active interactions happening for large scale amount of people it's yeah. social, right? And it's, it's, it's Instagram, it's Facebook, it's WhatsApp. All of their properties are places where people are logged in. They are making connections purposefully and they are engaging and using their data to do so. And Facebook has a business model to drive that. And so to me, they, those two things go hand in hand. And it's, it's, it's awesome for me to see that, that Facebook, you know, thought that those two things should go together. You know, yeah, same here. And, and that was part of what uh, convinced me to come on board. And look, he, here's the way I've thought about the decision, right? Like, it, you know, if you wanted to be an impressionist painter in the late 1800s, early 1900s, you had to go to Paris, right? That's where that was happening. And uh, you didn't go to Pittsburgh, right? And, 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 you know, and for me, it, no, you know, no, shout out to Pittsburgh. But uh, yeah, shout out my except for the Steelers, who I hate. No, I know, no Steelers here, man. I'm a Dolphins fan, and honestly, we've turned the corner here. That makes me really happy. But yeah, I mean, if you wanted to be an Impressionist painter, you went to Paris, and you hung out with the top Impressionists or the folks developing, you know, the Monets and the Renoirs of the world, whatever. Um, uh, you know, I think for privacy, right now, we're kind of in that same period of developing our profession and our standards and our practices and what privacy is is being created before us. And I don't think there's anywhere better than Facebook to uh, have a voice and uh, to participate and contribute and learn from and collaborate with people who uh, are all working on the hardest issues. So here I am and I'm psyched. excited. I'm psyched for you. It's cool, cool, cool role. And it's, it's like it works perfectly here because we talked to Mark who was the deputy GC at WhatsApp, you know, when they were acquired by Facebook. So right. he's right. got, he's got insight there. Uh, probably a little, maybe a touch more than you do it. <laughs> yeah, you definitely work there longer than I have on the weekend, <laughs> uh, you know, so that, that's for sure. And you know, what interest, what's interesting about Mark is, well, a lot of things are, but I'm a lot like him in the sense of Mark moves around, you know, he kind of, you know, it's not that he jumps around quickly, but he's, he's been around the block a few times and done a lot of different things. And, you know, I kind of set out, early in my career and I decided that's what I wanted to do and be like I wanted to kind of travel around and learn the business or the practice from different perspectives I don't think anybody has done that better than he has he's worked at all these cool companies it's amazing it's become more common my, my dad worked at the same place for 25 years yeah, yeah I think that's over different, different yeah. situation all right well here it is great conversation here it is with Mark do it. Are you done? <laughs> she okay all right, here we are, season two, Native Protection Breakfast Club. We've shifted the theme to music. This is famous tune by White Snake. Here we go again. Our guest is Mark Kahn, the GC and VP of Policy at Segment. Uh, now, now Twilio. Uh, congratulations, Mark. Um, Pedro, tee it up with your. You've got a usual sort of '80s question to, to tee it up with. But no, I don't got it. I really don't have an 80 segue here on the music end, except to say I'm really excited to see, uh, uh, hear from Mark. Uh, first of all, what was your favorite band in the 80s? And given that me and you and Andy are sort of, I might be right behind you guys, but we're all kind of hair challenged. What was your hair like in the 80s? Oh, let's, let's see. Um, well, first of all, I, do, I should clarify. 
yeah, I, I remained the GC of Segment. I didn't become the GC of Twilio, even though Twilio acquired us. So uh, uh, Twilio already has a GC. Her name is Karen Smith. She's awesome. Uh, but uh, in terms of my favorite, my favorite band during the 80s, my taste sort of ran, um, evolved, I would say. I started off in the 80s as very into, I would say, pop, typical top 40 stuff. Um, Y'all want to know what my first concert was? Yes. Go for it. Um, Michael Jackson and the Jackson 5 at the Gator Bowl in Jacksonville, Florida on the Victory Tour. Well, this is a Gator. You're talking to a Gator. I'm a Florida Gator, so nicely done. Um, Yeah, well, I I grew up in Savannah. I grew up in Savannah. And uh, my brother, I was 13 at the time. My brother and his... Uh, just got married. Um, uh, they took me down to Jacksonville and we went to 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 the Gator Bowl and went to went to the um, Victory Tour and it was amazing. Um, I wasn't a huge Michael Jackson fan, but this was kind of like you know, this is like Thriller had just come out. I think. I mean, it was that was the era. Um, not long after that, I think my second concert, I went to. Uh, was he? I think he was John Cougar Mellencamp at the time. Uh, he had various various names. Michael Jackson, yeah. Well, <laughs> he, he, no, he did a good show though. I mean, it was uh, more of a you know a rock show, but he he did like a three hour concert. I mean, a high energy. Uh, that was at the Civic Center in Savannah, Georgia. Um, uh, and so the, the, uh, those I, I, after that, I started I started to get into classic rock in, into high school, like Genesis and Rolling Stones. Um, I got to college and it's funny now, um, I, I really like this music now, but at the time I really wasn't getting along well with my roommate. And so I, therefore I did not like his music, um, which was, he was very into techno pop. So, um, erasure, new order, Depeche mode. Um, and so, and now I really, I like that, that stuff. I really enjoy listening, uh, uh, being from Georgia, I did become a pretty big REM fan. So alt rock, so kind of all over, all kind of all over the place. Um, uh, but so I don't favorite eighties band. I don't know who that would be actually. Um, I wasn't really into the hair bands, uh, which is sort of interesting given given we're talking about White Snake. Wasn't into like Poison or Motley Crue or any of those. Uh, but you know, uh, uh, but I, I was kind of all over the map. Pedro, what what was your first concert? My first ever concert. Oh man, this is a hard question. I think it was Wu Tang Clan. Excellent. Nice. Sure. I mean, this would have been in the early '90s, but yeah, I think it was Wu Tang. So I got, I got you guys beat. Millie Vanilli. Oh, that's unbeatable. That's unbeatable. You know who opened? Young MC. Oh, she does not. Oh, <laughs> you're doing good, man. I gotta tell you, Mark's got us both beat. Like, if your first concert is Michael Jackson, that's yeah. it's not so bad, man. Millie Vanilli. All that, all that, all that, I think they. <laughs> yeah, I, I think now the perspective on Michael's probably changed a bit. Uh, sure, music, <laughs> yeah, he's all like, whoa, like that's that's to- totally fair. Top of the great, great legacy, great legacy. Yeah, well, that's that's <laughs> great. We'll leave that to other folks, but it's hard to beat yeah. Michael Jackson on a stage, right? During it was a fantastic, it was Thrilling. a fantastic show. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, we notice I I know we got to get into substance and stuff, Andy, but like notice how the hair question just faded away. Much like my hair. <laughs> uh, I did have, there is a picture, God, when, this should have been right at the end of the 80s, 1989, when I had seriously big hair. I had let it grow out. I remember this, 
which was at the end of freshman year of college. Um, I stayed over, actually it was sophomore year. So technically it was 1990, I guess, but it, the point, the point um, remains. Uh, I had stayed and worked on campus after college. And one of my good friends, she showed up back at campus and I let my hair grow out all summer and she shows up back on campus and like, she, She's like walking by the place I'm working uh, and I knock on the window. It's like, Christine, Christine. And she looked and she's like, <laughs> you know, totally freaked out, you know, <laughs> did not recognize me. So, and I might've rocked them all at one point or another, but there's no, there's no photo evidence of that. I can see them all. I had a rat. I tried to get a rat tail so my mom grabbed me by it and uh, <laughs> that. Good for her. My mom was not into that vibe. Well, I, cho I chose White Snake not because I knew you liked it, Mark. It's because I, I, you know, as you look at your career, you've been fortunate in the sense that you've like, you've gone from one seriously successful tech company to another, to another. And, you know, they've succeeded in spite of you being there, which is, which is amazing. <laughs> I kid, I kid. But, uh, uh, you know, it's a super interesting series of places that you've worked. And I think like, I just wanted to, I don't know that, that we've ever like talked through all of them and, you know, in, in, in the past before, I was just curious how you, how you got, you know, how you left a firm and went into one of these companies and how, kind of how you ended up, um, as you were just sort of describing before we recorded, jumping into WhatsApp, which is a super interesting uh, company and an interesting exit to Facebook and, and all that. So can you take us back to how you, how you sort of, how it unfolded for you? Yeah. So actually, if you rewind way back to the mid nineties, so I, I graduated college in 1992 with a computer science degree. And when I graduated college, I was like, I am never going back to school again. And then I worked for a few years and ended up, actually, I worked for the, for the Oakland A's baseball team. And the president, of the A's was uh, a guy named Sandy Alderson, uh, who's still in baseball, uh, but he was a Harvard-trained lawyer. He had gotten to the A's because he had been general counsel. He'd been outside lawyer for, for the A's and then became general counsel of the A's and eventually became general manager and then ultimately the president. Um, but he was a Harvard-trained lawyer. And just as I was talking to him and I was starting to think, you know, I don't know that, like, this has been like sort of boyhood dream, work for a baseball team. And it was really, it was a lot of fun, but it was like, at the end of the day, it just became a job and actually it turned me off of being a baseball fan for several years, uh, which was actually growing up a huge baseball fan. It was, that was pretty traumatic. I'll let, you, um, I'll let you finish, but this is uncanny. I had the same experience in my career going to work for ESPN, had the exact same feeling and had the exact same, you know, needing to take a break from it. I'll let you keep going, but it's, that's interesting. Yeah. It was, it was, I didn't expect that. And, uh, but Sandy sort of became a mentor of mine and I was just talking to him and I was like, you know, what do you think about law school? I'm thinking of going to law school because it was like, this was as the dot com was getting going. And I was like, well, I have this computer science degree. I would love to go to law school and bring like law and computer science together and go help tech companies. That was my vision. I graduated law school in 2000 and clerked for two years. And so between 2000 and 2002, as you might recall, the world shifted, dot-com bubble burst. The firm I was supposed to go to um, said, you know, they delayed my start date and, and I was supposed to be a tech transactions lawyer at a Silicon Valley firm. And I was like, um, they delayed my start date. I pushed back and they were like, no, 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 
we just don't have the work right now. I was like, okay. So, and meanwhile, I, on the home front, I had um, my, I had two kids at that point, um, still had two kids, but they had just been born. One was, one was born during the third year of law school and one was born during the second year of the clerkship. And so here we are like a couple months after my son being born, my second son being born. And I'm like, do I really want to go to a law firm that doesn't have the work for me? Probably not. Um, not really much of a tech transactions legal practice going on right now, particularly for a junior associate who's never practiced. Um, let's, let's rebrand as a litigator. Coming off of a clerkship, we're going to be a litigator now. Um, and that was a pretty easy transition to make. And so, but I also decided I didn't really want to go to a big firm. And so I went to this boutique firm, which had a bunch of big firm refugees out in San Francisco, where I'd gone to college and law school. And um, I you know, went to that firm and it was great. I loved it. Um, I started, I did a lot of, I did litigation, went to trial twice, but I also started um, doing work as uh, government contracts work, which is very niche. And we had some tech clients um, from the, from the Valley that, you know, needed help with, you know, the predecessor to FedRAMP and all of that getting on the GSA schedule as well as larger contracts. And, um, but I had this nagging sensation that this is not really what I went to law school to go do. I adored the firm. I enjoyed the practice, but like something felt missing. And, uh, uh, I would, so I would look at jobs from time to time, uh, in, in tech. And eventually, um, I ended up taking a job with a company called Business Objects to basically run their government contracting business. Now, Business Objects was an enterprise software company. Business intelligence was, was the area. And I, so I went there in 2006. And um, the funny thing is, I hated the job. It was a great company. But the job was I was doing like licensing transactions. It was kind of rinse and repeat, both commercial and government. And it was just like, it was. You, uh, did you see it as a chance to get inside and expand and, and that didn't necessarily happen? It didn't seem like it was going to happen. And I was literally like, probably I was ha starting to have conversations with my old law firm to go back to them. Cause I was like, this isn't, this isn't what I signed up for. This is just not that interesting, not that challenging. Um, and, and not, and didn't see it holding my interest. And as I was starting to have those conversations, um, we got approached by a couple of companies, one of which was SAP um, in an acquisition and acquisition offer. And the, I got involved in the acquisition. I basically ran diligence on the target side, not because I had any specific knowledge, but because I happened to be working on a contract management project which gave me access to all the contracts in the company and so like my boss had no idea what I was doing my boss's boss had no idea what I was doing it was just the GC had asked me to help out because he knew I had access and and that was sort of life-changing on some level not running like running diligence on for an acquisition by SAP was not something I care to repeat but I got exposed to this whole different side and I was like oh it's not in-house life I don't like, it's this job I don't like. And um, so the acquisition happened. Go ahead, Andy. I just said, amen. I've, I've had so many similar experiences. Like I did the same thing, big contracts project acquisition. It's just, uh, it, it's so weirdly life-changing. When you're young yeah. and, and you're in-house and you discover to yourself like, oh, like I can, I can practice law this way 
it just never occurred. It's sometimes it just like you have to get hit over the head with it. It doesn't occur to you that the job can be like that, you know? Well, I think as when you're outside and when you're inside at your first company, you tend to paint in-house with a very broad brush. Well, like this is outside work. This is inside work. And it's not, it takes an event like that to realize, Oh, that's, one example of in-house work there's actually lots of different there's for every in-house for every company and for every job there's just like hundreds of different variations and it matters where legal sits it matters what industry it matters the size of the team um it matters what's expected of legal does legal view themselves as an enabler of business or a hurdle you know the department of no because there are some companies where that is the view and that's not necessarily wrong it's just not a department i want to be a part of um, and so the, uh, I ended up leaving there not long after, uh, yeah, okay. because my, my That's fundamental okay. job, my fundamental job wasn't changing. Um, I was still gonna be a licensing attorney and that was not going to be fun to me. So I did end up leaving, but rather than go back to my law firm, I went to a much smaller company and transitioned into more of a product counseling type role. Um, product and, and trans, but my internal clients were the engineering and product teams. And that, and that, that to me was um, much more in line with what I went to law school with there. When did the privacy stuff start to wiggle and do your work? Uh, like at what stage? You saw early iteration. So my, the company, the, that second company I went to was Palm. Remember the old Palm Pilot? Oh, this, yeah. was, this was later. This was this was uh, sort of in the reinvention of the company as the iPhone was um, uh, had come out and Palm was reinventing itself. We had a great operating system, a, a really sleek design for a product. Um, started early indications of privacy then, but it was that was definitely not the focus. Um, uh, I would say, for me, it wasn't really until. Evernote, which was two more companies later after Palm. Um, so that was in the, I went to Evernote in 20, in the end of 2011. So it was kind of, you know, because there we dealt with a security incident, you know, and you started to see I'm not uh, the, the pro all my private, all my documents are on Evernote, everything. everything. <laughs> I digitized my life. I digitized yeah, it. Off. I still use it. I still use I love it. Evernote. Uh, it's, um, uh, it, it was a powerful product. I, I'm happy to see they're still around. Like it, it was also a story of like not ever really fulfilling the, the sort of unicorn potential, at least not to date. So the privacy stuff starts wiggling in around Evernote. Um, when did you, like, like for me, my first kind of like, I don't even know, baptism in privacy was a data breach. When did you decide, what occurred that it helped you decide, oh, wow, this privacy stuff, we need to take it seriously? Was it like a singular event, like a data breach or something like that? Or was it a series of things or did it evolve? Like, how did that happen? So, actually, I think this really gets into the WhatsApp piece. Um, I mean, at Evernote, we had like, you know, some security stuff that we navigated. Um, and obviously, people had their notes in, a, in our cloud service. Um, and we were, you know, we were dealing with, um, you know, the, the privacy policies in terms of service, but it didn't really become um, visceral or sort of became so much a part of my job until WhatsApp. 
where particularly when we when we when we rolled out end-to-end -end encryption of our messages of, of whatsapp messages and the um the 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 sort of this the significance of that for users um uh in terms of the security of their messages not worried about messages getting spied on either by hackers or subject to law enforcement requests things or to wiretaps things like that so it was less about privacy from a regulatory perspective and privacy more from a a user expectation uh and, and user trust because whatsapp was being used you know in countries that are um, uh, have regimes that are not necessarily democracy oriented. Uh, query whether the U.S. is still that way, but that, it, this is not a political conversation, so we'll just let that go. I think it's an interesting call out. Like what, 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 Pedro? Are you saying that it happened with the data breach? And my experience is similar to Mark's in that it, it privacy was there when I was at TD Ameritrade and part of the offering. But when did it really become a fundamental piece of my job when I shifted to a company where it was part of the product or, or part of the offering and it became table stakes to, to be involved and all of the industry groups were talking about that topic and we're leaning in on it. And so um, that's, that's been almost like how I've chosen roles after that, where it is a critical function. And I think that extends into product counseling and just data and tech in general it doesn't have to just be privacy. I think like privacy is one chunk of that, and and anything where there's a data a, he a data heavy piece of the of the business now it just means all that stuff is implicated. And I think you know people like us, a lot of us are drawn to those challenges because they're they're hard. Yeah, like for me it was it was a data breach for sure. I was at a firm uh, trying to fashion myself like a privacy cyber person. Um, and uh, kind of like you, Mark, like I just decided I was going to do that, right? It, it, you know, when you decided I'm going to rebrand a litigator and the hardest part was getting work at the beginning. People didn't take it seriously. I was just an associate, you know, like trying to figure out how to make this something real. And a small client of ours, and, um, and it's a, they were like a, a chain of beauty salons, you know, had this like hard drive stolen. Like that's what it was. And, you know, that sounds like to us now, these big companies, like, you know, who cares, but not really. Like, they took it super seriously. They, you know, I, it was my first exposure to working in privacy in what I would call like a crisis mode, if that makes sense. And I loved it. I loved the issues. I loved the pressure of it. I loved, you know, helping the client try to do the right thing. Back then, this is 2000 and shit, I don't know, man. It was a while back, at least 10 years ago, um, maybe more, you know. Nobody really knew what they were doing, especially at the small size. Shout out to Carlton Fields, my old law firm, who uh, gave me the bandwidth to figure out how to do it. One of the reasons, and I'd like to hear Mark on this, but like one of the reasons I think those things, those events in particular, tend to, to do that for people or like energize them is it's, for, especially for outside counsel, it's one of the first time you get to feel like a member of a team. And it's like a team win. When you go in, in the, you know this from the army also, Pedro, from being, you know, in a forward area, in a difficult, uh, uh, very, very um, pressure-filled situation as a team and you come out the other side, you're always closer, you're always bonded and it helps you feel like, all right, we've been through some stuff together and we accomplished it and we, we got through it together. And I always found that helped me feel like that. It, it's so funny, Andy, that you mentioned that because 
that I'd forgotten this. That's what I really didn't like about my first in-house experiences is like I had my work colleagues, other lawyers, we sat near each other. I could ask them questions, but everything I was doing was solo until that acquisition, until we got acquired. Now I'm part of this team. And that was, you're absolutely right. Like that sort of team aspect of things um, is, is hugely important. And that's, you know, that's where like law firms, particularly if you're on a big deal or you're on a trial team, like that is, you, you are all in it together and you're able to work with each other and, and you, you end up in close quarters. Like I said, if you're in trial or doing a big deal. And so that, and there's just no, it's hard to replicate that um, uh, in house. If you're, you know, if you're negotiating, you know, licensing deals. I, that's actually a great way to frame it. Like if you don't have anyone to commiserate with and, you know, kind of, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Like build a spree de corps around a mission, man, a job can be, a, no matter who you're working for, it can be awful. I'm, well, I won't mention the job. It was a long time ago, but at the company, I felt like literally I was alone and, and it's the worst feeling. So I totally like the way you explained that, Mark, because I've been through it and it sucked. Going through going through M and A, which Mark just did, especially when you're you know being being acquired, and you don't have the leverage you would like, and you're negotiating really hard, trying to get the best deal, working really closely with outside counsel, staying up very late, they're working really hard. That beer that I shared with my outside counsel when we closed is one of the best feelings you'll ever have in business, because of the things you just mentioned. It's they don't they don't happen that often. And so they're just, they're so critical and it makes the job so much better to, to feel like you got through that kind of thing. Do you remember what kind of beer you guys had? It was many. I don't remember. I don't remember just one. I would, I would never want to be an MA, an MA, an MNA attorney. Uh, okay. These outside counsels that go from deal to deal, I don't know how they do it. But I will tell you the, the sort of the two, three month period that we went through with this acquisition um, was some of the most fun I've ever had in my life as a lawyer. And a big part of it was the team. And it was, it was, it was, it was outside counsel. It was inside counsel, the, the internal segment lawyers, plus all of our finance folks, and our HR folks and our, our board. And it's just like that. It was like, not just one team it was multiple teams and just, um, uh, and at the end of it, I was both exhausted, but it was exhilarating at the same time. And I also spent the better parts of September and October not paying attention to politics. And so that was, that was an added benefit. What a huge benefit. I yeah. mean, I remember so many of the same things, like you're working so hard. I remember um, during the session and deal, getting into bed like 1130, checking my email, replying to our CEO, and then my phone ringing two seconds later. And I turned to my wife, I'm like, I got to take this call. And she's like, are you kidding me? And I said, yeah, you know, it's just, this is what we're in right now. And there's something totally, you know, insane and, and also exhilarating about it. And then getting to the other side of that is, is just so, so wonderful in that way. I've been on the acquirer side most of my career. And luckily, my role in M&A has been like some very specific due diligence components, right? Like commercial privacy, cyber due diligence review, and then integration after the acquisition. Being on the acquirer side is a lot of fun because you do, yeah, I mean, look, it's obviously a collaborative process, but you do get to dictate a little bit, kind of, uh, you know. Yeah. So that makes, I don't know, Mark, if you've got any insight on that. No, but, I, 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 and actually being on the target, look, this is part of what I sign up for when I do small companies is like, it may, it may well, the, if there's an exit, 
it, you know, hope maybe it's an IPO, but good chance it won't be. And it's an acquisition. And that's part of the deal. This is the first, this deal was the first time I met, I've ever been the GC for it. Um, but the, you do, it, it, the, our outside counsel, who was um, uh, a good one, that who they were fantastic in this deal, um, early on, sort of right as we were, you know, maybe a week or two away from signing the term sheet. So this has been, you know, right around Labor Day. Um, she, Al, Alessandra Alley said to me, um, you know, the th as you enter into diligence, just remember, like, at, where I see people kind of go crazy is when they just sort of end up fighting every request and just you're going to drive yourself crazy and understand you're probably not going to be successful with most of it so just you know you, you, there are things you're going to want to push back on but um the acquirer is going to get pretty much everything that they want unless there's a really strong reason and so that actually was a very helpful piece of advice because it really it was like okay we are just like it, it, it causes when the request came in we're like yeah this is a pain but we're just going to do it rather than spending cycles and thereby shortening the window uh, uh, and, and, and spending lots of energy on fighting something that we were ultimately going to lose. Had you, learned, had you learned from past experiences how to set yourself up for those things, technology, mindset, you know, just to be ready for that? Because that, that's, that's not a lesson everyone, that's a good outside counsel that gave you that prep statement. Because that's not always the case. And if you're used to a financing, you can sometimes push back in the financing and say, like, I'm not going to give you all this. Do you really need all of this? You know, you need every single thing in the world we've ever done. Yeah. Um, to an extent, I think the big lesson in terms of like surviving the acquisition, that process that I've learned uh, from prior deals was um, making sure that you have the right folks, the right number of folks and the right people involved as part of your team. Um, because it is, it, and it's, it's an art, it's not a science. You don't want to bring in internal people in too soon because it's a huge distraction. And plus, if the deal doesn't go through, there's the emotional toll, like you end up having to grieve the loss of a deal. Um, and their day jobs that they need to focus on. Um, and so that was the lesson I learned is that once we sort of it became sort of we entered that go phase and there were kind of you know multiple checkpoints we hit along the way bringing more folks in to 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 help do it both in the legal team and other teams uh was was the big lesson that i had taken from prior deals was like if you try and be a hero um you're just gonna you're you're gonna die Agreed. do you see do, do, do you see a lot of i mean covid and the pandemic was it different doing an, uh, an M&A transaction during COVID? Like, what? How did it affect it in any way, if at all? I, I think it was certainly different. Like I said, I haven't really sat in this chair for a deal before, but I, my 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 impressions are um, it made some things easier because I didn't have to like I didn't have to put paper up on a conference room window to block out people from seeing. We could have meetings and nobody knew we were having meetings, and that was all. That was all fine, but like that sort of, <laughs> we had end of day drinks many times, but it was all over Zoom, which is just not the same, not the same thing. Um, uh, and just to sort of like, how do you do things collaboratively? You know, lots of more, you know, using Google Docs or whatever your tool paper, whatever your tool is, and just that sort of like where you might get a working session sitting down in a conference room 
th those obviously just didn't happen or happened in different forms. I would be bummed. I mean, one of the one of the great moments was closing the deal, seeing the funding come through, hugging the CEO, hugging the CFO, you know, going out for drinks and just that that celebration. That that probably sucks to miss out on that. I mean, you'll yeah. you'll do it later, but it won't quite be the same, you know. Not not the same, um, not the same at all. The funny thing is the deal signed at 3 a.m. on the Monday before the markets opened after leaking the Friday before. So we had to basically get it. And we, you know, we, we had reached by the time that by the time it leaked, it, it, you know, we were in good. It, it didn't never felt like the deal was going to crater. But just knowing that it was out there now, like put some additional pressure to make sure that we uh, got, got it done on Monday before the markets opened. Awesome. Before we finish, Mark, I want you to talk about confections a little bit. Um, yeah, this is the part of my life that I most uh, uh, like to talk about the most. So my wife is a pastry chef. This is a second career for her. And so about 11 or 12 years ago, she went to pastry school and worked at a series of bakeries, a couple bakeries, and then went out on her own um, uh, seven or eight years ago, mostly doing corporate orders for uh, some of my employers uh, at the time. It's a funny story about the segment acquisition, by the way, on that. Um, but about three and a half years ago, she opened a retail spot called Confections. It's named after us. We're vain like that. Um, it's a bakery in the Mission District of San Francisco. Um, and uh, this is, it, we're recording this Thanksgiving week. So this is a crazy week for my wife because she does amazing pies. Um, and uh, uh, so the bakery though, has blown up during COVID. It's been fascinating. Uh, we didn't know what was going to happen. Um, uh, into definitely sort of March, I think, yeah, March was our sales were significantly lower than last year. And then after that, we kind of did some e-commerce stuff, no shipping, but started doing all of our orders online, pre-orders. And then we eventually brought stuff, allowed people to order at the bakery. Um, it's a breakfast oriented place. So like lots of croissants and scones and do these amazing biscuit sandwiches on buttermilk biscuits. Uh, uh, and, uh, so what it turns out is there's a lot of people who live near the bakery who used to work downtown in the financial district who are now working from home. And this is a takeaway place. So it's like, even in COVID it's been really successful because people are looking to have safe dining experiences or, and alternatives for food. So they go and, and, uh, uh, we'll pick something up from the bakery and, and um, it's been, it's been nutty. We did one of the cool things that we did um, early on uh, as the hospitals were getting uh, overwhelmed with COVID. Uh, we, um, how did it all get going? This, we had a woman, a nurse at San Francisco General Hospital reached out to us and said, Hey, I want to treat my team to um, some, some food from your bakery. I'm a big fan of your bakery you know, can, can I order some stuff? And I was like, yeah, what's your budget and how many people? And her budget was like $300, but she was going to order like $400 worth of stuff. And I said, I said, it's okay. We'll, we'll make it work. Um, and so we're like talking through, talking through everything with her. And I said, okay, here's the deal. We're, you're going to pay for this first one. That's great. We really appreciate it. We're going to bring you the food. And then next week we're going to do it again, only it's on us. Yeah. And she started to get teary eyed turns out she has a huge Instagram following. She posts this thing on Instagram when we brought the food and thanks us. And I was like, wow, that's amazing. 
And then I got like two separate reach outs from two different people in, my, in parts of my life saying, hey, we want to contribute to this. And I'm like, huh, let's make this a thing. Yeah. And so we start, what we did was for the next, it went on, we, we anticipated doing it for two weeks, it ended up going for about three months where we had community funded deliveries to San Francisco General Hospital once a week, or actually ended up twice a week because we did the morning shift and the graveyard shift or the overnight shift where we brought breakfast for an entire wing of San Francisco That's General so Hospital great. and it was all community funded. That's amazing. That's great. You guys have an Instagram? Does the bakery have an Instagram account? Bakery has an Instagram. We have about 4,500 followers. What is it? Um, what is it? Do you know the hammock? Oh, uh, it's, it's confections. It's, I guess, hold on, let me, let me make sure I, I want to make sure I don't butcher the, yeah. uh, yeah, it's just contract. It's, it's Instagram. It's confections K A H N. So the A before the H that often gets butchered. Uh, K A H N F E C T I O N S confections. Um, and we have on Facebook and Instagram. Awesome. Uh, like I said, I feel like I saw a picture of you on Facebook or something like delivering. And I just thought like, that's so great. That's so cool. It was, it was so energizing um, at a time when like not getting social interactions and not, and to be there, like just to, and we never, obviously never went into the hospital, but we would meet the nurses at the roundabout and they'd bring down a cart and um, when we would give them the food and they were so appreciative. Awesome. That's so great. That's um, super cool. That's a very good Thanksgiving story. I'm excited. Yeah. <laughs> about it. Awesome. Well, hey, thanks, Mark. Thanks for joining us. Uh, this has been great. Great to talk to you. Great to see you, even though, you know, we don't have, we don't get chances uh, because of this stuff to hang out. This has fulfilled a big social need for me to see my friends. So it's good. Awesome. I, I am honored and humbled to be included in this. And I'm glad we got to talk about the, the my favorite thing, the bakery, uh, nice. in addition to, in addition to privacy and M&A and all that. Nice. Yeah. Nice. I thought it was a fun conversation. So We'll let you go. We'll do our we'll do our spiel here. And uh, thanks again, man. Thanks a lot. Thanks, man. All right. We'll see you guys. All right, Mark.